0: Last week we kind of took a detour to the third day of the resurrection. But when we talk about the Book of Esther, we have four main characters. Who knows who they are? Esther. Esther's one. <laughs> yes. Good. Yeah. Esther. Mordecai. Mordecai. Haman. And? And the king. Okay? So we have four main characters that we're working through. You know, the most interesting thing about the Book of Esther to me is that it is a book, it's real history. The hard thing to verify uh, archaeologically is the names get switched over because there are three different languages involved. The different languages are both the, the Hebrew, uh, well, there's actually four there's Hebrew, Aramaic, <clears throat> there's Greek, and there's Media Persia. So, with all those languages, some of the names were difficult, and most of all the early translations of the book of Esther are in Greek which means they got translated from one Kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and they got translated into the Greek when the Greeks conquered Media Persia. So, but it's one thing to think about this story historically, but the thing that is unbelievable about God and the way He puts together the Scriptures is that He put this story together in an unbelievable allegory. I mean, the allegory that we're drawing out of the Book of Esther over these amount of times It's just absolutely amazing. So we're going to start in Esther chapter 5, verse 1. And then we're going to repeat a little bit of who each of these characters represent. But Esther chapter (coughs) 5, verse 1. And this is what we talked about the last time I was here. On the third day, on the third day, that's an unbelievable truth in the Christian life. Why does God go out of all his way? Why does Esther ask for three days of fasting, and then on the third day, Esther puts on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace? So we go to the allegory. Who does the king represent? Uh, this is where i learned whether I've been teaching or not. <laughs> Who does Esther represent? A believer. Esther is a believer. Who does Mordecai represent? The Holy Spirit. Who does Haman represent? The flesh. the flesh, okay, or the devil, but basically the flesh. So Haman represents the flesh, Esther represents the uh, believer, and Mordecai represents the Holy Spirit. And ever since, from the beginning of the book, we have seen that Esther is always obedient to her cousin. She, the one characteristic of Esther, all the way from the first beginning to last is one. No matter who she touches, she is welcome. She, somewhere in her outward manifestation, she pleases everybody. And not just because of her outward beauty, but she simply, everyone accepted her. You know, in the midst of it, we see this continually. But we see over and over again that Esther always obeys Mordecai, who represents the Holy Spirit. So who does the king represent? A non-believer. The king represents the unbeliever. And at this point in time, you know, we get to chapter um, 2, 3. In chapter 3, we see that Mordecai turns over the reins of his whole kingdom to who? Haman. Haman. What did I say? Mordecai. Not Mordecai, the king. Thank you. See, I need this type of help. I tell my kids in class, I say, you need to understand. Sometimes when I get to the board, I write faster than I think. And then it comes out wrong. So, yes, the king. Okay, so the king turns his whole kingdom over to, he takes a signet ring and he gives it to his flesh. And he now allows his kingdom to be run by the flesh. And he doesn't even investigate. He doesn't even investigate Haman. When Haman decides to destroy this whole nation, you will notice that the king never asked what nation it was. Never does Haman even tell him who he wants to destroy, because the Jews had an unbelievable reputation in the kingdom at this point in time. I mean, ever since Daniel, and then Daniel, and even uh, Mordecai himself holds a a decent position in the kingdom, he wouldn't be allowed near the gate the way he was if he didn't. And uh, so the, the Media Persia was benefiting from the Jews living in Susa. And. You know, when Haman and the king sits down in chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, and they decide to sit down and drink together, and it was like they were really happy, but the whole city was what? Confused. When people live in the flesh, it presents nothing but confusion. And the city of Susa is bewildered. Why is the king allowing these people who have been beneficial to the kingdom to be destroyed? And uh, so, so then we <clears throat> we get to uh, chapter four, and in chapter four, uh, Mordecai begins to get a hold of Esther's attention. And so, at the end of chapter four, we're gonna. This is chapter five, right here. So, Mordecai finally gets Esther to begin to understand what's going on. Esther had no idea what was going on. She didn't even know about the edict until, uh, Haman, until uh, Mordecai begins to communicate to her that Haman is wanting to get all the people destroyed. So the, her first response is, but if I go to the king and the king doesn't raise the scepter, <clears throat> then I'm going to be destroyed. So now at the, in the middle of that, she finally looks at um, Mordecai or sends a message to Mordecai, and she says, if I perish, I perish. But she says, I want everyone to fast for three days. Over and over again, we see this picture in scripture, three days on the third day. And it always represents And it was worth spending the whole last Sunday on the resurrection. But now you see on the third day, Esther puts on a royal robe, stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. Now, if you want to look at the allegory, what's Esther putting on? The armor of God. She is putting on her new life. How often in the book of Ephesians do you see put on, put on, put off, put off lying, put off lying, <coughs> put on speaking the truth, put off stealing and, and work, put on laboring so that you have to give to others. She is putting on the new life. So her royal robes represent the fact that here is Esther putting on her new life. Because only in the power of the new life can she walk in and face death. Noah, how do you, you ever ask the question, how do missionaries die? You know, how do they give up their life? <clears throat> I, I just watched a, a, one hour of a two hour um, YouTube on the church in Iran. What a fascinating story that was. The Iranian church, actually the, the uh, author of this YouTube, says that the fastest growing church in the world today is in Iran. That's really hard to believe. But it's an amazing church, and they're not church planning, they're not establishing churches. They are going from person to person, to small group to small group. And they said that the greatest witness to the truth of Jesus Christ was Atoa Khomeini, because he was so wicked. And and and, and Muslims began to put down and the people begin to feel so oppressed within that nation, they began to realize that there's no truth in Muslimism. And they're looking. The people on the bottom echelons of Iran are looking for truth elsewhere. And it's amazing how the gospel is, is going through there. But this, this video that I listened to was like the fourth time I have heard stories of people seeing visions of Jesus Christ in the Middle East as people coming to Christ. So, I don't know all that's going on over there, but how do people face death? We cannot face death in our natural self. We have to put on the new man. So, Esther puts on the royal robe. She's putting on the new life. She's living in the power of the resurrection. You know, there's a song out now. It says, uh, this power of the resurrection is now living in... she comes in front of the king. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. Now she knows at this point in time that if the king does not raise the scepter, she's ready for death. Go ahead. So when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So unless the king raises the scepter, she has doom for death. He raises the scepter. Go ahead. Then the king asks, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given you. That's a phrase. I'm not sure he really wants to give half the kingdom to her, but it's a phrase. Do you notice, where else did you see that phrase? That phrase was in the New Testament somewhere Does anybody remember Where? Oh, well, Satan offered him everything. Yeah. yeah. Nope, there's another one. Who else? Remember the New Testament? <coughs> Who offered somebody half the kingdom? Luke, yeah. The no, oh, no. That, yeah, that's somebody just said that one. They offered the whole kingdom. Um, Herod offered um, his, do- his uh, stepdaughter half the kingdom. <laughs> With John the Baptist, because he <coughs> came to Gas and he looked to her and said, "Up to half the kingdom is yours." And she went and asked her mother, "What should she ask for?" And she said, "What? The head, the head, of, the head, head of John God. the Baptist." So, you know, and, and isn't it interesting that that's the one thing he didn't want to give her, because he, you know, he he, he knew John had something about John, you know. So anyway. So the king says, What is your request? Even up to the kingdom, it will be given to you. Go ahead. So if it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come to get today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Now it's interesting. She's willing to face Haman and the flesh with the king, and she has no idea. The king is still the unbeliever who has yielded himself over to Haman, you know. And um, but I do understand that she understood that the king liked what you see it all right from the beginning of this book. A good party. Party. He loved a good party, man. I mean, that guy loved parties. He loved banquets. So she offers the king a banquet. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may be we do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. Go ahead. Now, one of the things I do find interesting, because she had said in Chapter 4, she says to, uh, she says that the king um, has not asked for me for, I think it was four months or something like that, since she had been with the king. And so, uh, and I really believe that at this point in time, you know, within the allegory itself, you have, the king has been basically implanted with Haman and whatever Haman wants to do with the kingdom, etc., But now you have the believer in the palace. You have a believer in the palace. By the way, this whole allegory is not not something that I've done. I I got this from a place uh, years ago when I was on deputation. My wife and I listened to a guy teach this whole thing at one point in time. And um, it really touched my heart as an understanding of the Christian life as I was listening to the allegory called uh, Teaching Behind the Book of Esther. And um, so, and now my mind goes dead because I can't think of what point I wanted to make with that statement. <laughs> so, all right. But, um, so, oh, I know what it was. So you have an unbeliever and you have a believer. And the, the theme of that was called the right man in and the wrong man out. And right now, who is in the palace running the palace? Haman in the flesh and so it's trying to get the right man in and the wrong man out but right now the only person available to bring the right man in is a believer so you have a believer there now beginning to influence the heart of the king who is the unbeliever so as they're drinking wine the king asks Esther now what is your petition will be given you and what your request even up to half the kingdom will be granted now this is the second time he repeats the offer And now, tell me that, you know, three days of fasting to begin to get up the the, the ability to walk in the power of the Spirit of God, to actually face death, to walk in, she has to begin walking in the power and strength of the Spirit of God and trying to trust the Lord in this situation. She's about to blow my mind with her patience. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king, grant my petition and fulfill my request. Let Let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Now, why does she wait a second day before she brings her petition to the king? How does she know to wait a second day? You know, that's just an unbelievable statement, you know, and when you see the next day, tomorrow, which, sorry, you won't see for another month, but, um, you know, when you see what the Lord does, but I want you to understand that the whole theme of the book of Esther is what? Does anybody know? It's something to do with God. What? Well, it could be, yeah, it's waiting on God, a little more than just waiting on God. It is the God who is behind the scenes, the unseen God? We have an unseen God who is at work in all of our lives that we don't not aware of, and He is doing things behind the scenes that just will amaze us as we begin to realize, you know, what God is doing. Um, I, it, it, staggers my imagination, uh, what God is doing behind the scenes, and uh, I. I think I did the last time I was here. I shared a story of my supervisor, and I had no idea what God was doing when I got my job teaching, you know. And God had worked in this woman's life to the point where she asked me after dinner and asked me the gospel. But it had something to do with the God who was at work behind the scenes. God is doing amazing things. So if the king regards me a favor, okay, go ahead. Haman went out that day happy. The flesh is unbelievable. I mean, here is Haman. He's invited to the banquet by the queen with the king, and he's the only one invited to this banquet. And the flesh just has this unbelievable thing about it. it says, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, He was filled with rage against Mordecai. The spirit lusteth against the flesh. So that you, these two things are at odds. Mordecai, go go back just a little bit. Um, We said this before, the very first time, you know, uh, Haman was so filled with himself that he never noticed that Mordecai wasn't kneeling. You know, when you get on that power surge, you know, he's, he's pompous and up there, and it's amazing when we're filled with our flesh and we're filled with the thoughts about ourselves that we're not aware of what people really think of us. You know, nobody really liked Haman, but they bowed because the king had told them to bow. But Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. The spirit will never bow to the flesh. It won't. And he knew the destructive is evil. Haman, the hater of the Jews. And Mordecai knew, must have known something enough about Haman and who he was that he refuses to bow. But the Spirit will never bow to the flesh. And what's interesting is that the flesh just wants, well, it's what we all want, you know I mean? What was Satan's greatest sin? What? Pride. I will set my throne above God's throne I'm going to be above... The, the, our sin nature is our independence of God. I don't need you, God. You know, when they saw that the, the fruit was good, the, the taste, that, you know, when I eat take this fruit, I will be like God. And if I'm like God, I don't need God. And, you know, and that's the sin. That is the sin passed down to us from Adam, is that desire to be independent of God. God created us, you know, for him. And we need him desperately in our lives. But anyway, so he went out happy, but he sees Mordecai and the very first thing he does. He gets filled with rage. Go ahead. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. I mean, after all, he's about to go to another banquet again tomorrow, you know, with the king. So he goes home and he calls together his friends and Zeresh's wife. Go ahead. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. You know, the flesh is all about who? Me, myself, my I, you know. It's all about me, you know, how great I am. And, you know, 50-some years of salvation, and the Lord is still working on my pride. He just never stops. Uh, You know, when we begin to realize just how much we need him, and, uh, I mean, it's just a funny thing yesterday, you know, I mean, I I played bridge, and the last four times my partner and I came in first, and yesterday I made some of the stupidest mistakes I've made in a long time, and it just bothered me, and and I keep talking to the Lord, and I say, Lord, why does this bother me, because you don't like not to be first, and you you know, pride of your heart, you know? And, uh, but, and you have to work right? on work that issue all the time. Lord's pretty faithful to us, you know, but it's not an issue that ever goes away. The flesh is always battling the spirit. and But, you know, you'll see that the flesh is always boasting about itself. Go ahead. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow, so he's all excited about tomorrow. Now, how many of you know what awaits him tomorrow? Uh, see, if you're not reading the book, huh? But anyway, so you got to have to wait a month to find out what awaits him tomorrow. Okay, go ahead. But all this, look at the flesh, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. I can have not have any pleasure unless everyone is bowing to me. Wow. You know, what? I am number one. I'm the most important thing for everybody to be seeing. You know, all this that I have gives me no satisfaction because Mordecai won't bow. Isn't that amazing how how the flesh can get... When we begin to... Well, we're going to look there at Galatians 5 in a, in a couple minutes, but <clears throat> when we see what our flesh is like. <clears throat> and it's it just, it's amazing that when we sense anger in our heart, the scriptures are given for our benefit to help us to begin to grow spiritually. One of the best verses of scripture I've ever read in my life years ago was in Proverbs. I don't remember what the reference is, but it simply says, only by pride cometh contention. And basically what it's talking about is that when my heart is feeling contentious, there is an issue of pride involved. It's not the issue of whether I'm right or wrong, it's the issue of the fact that I want to be seen as right and the other person as wrong. I could be right, but it's the contentiousness of the heart that says that I've got to be seen as right and people have got to see me and accept me, and and that's that's just the quality that's in all of us. But it, but that verse so helped me <clears throat> because I find that when I sense that my heart is contentious, then I can sit back and say, Lord, why is my heart contentious today? Lord, show me my heart and show me what's going on inside this thing. Go ahead. His wife's the and all his friends said to him, "Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of fifty cubits, and." Ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggested delighted Haman and had the pole set up. I mean, now Haman is happy now. Okay, I'm getting rid of the spirit. I'm getting rid of of my conviction. I got a pole set up. And obviously, you know what I'm going to do, and I'm going to have him impaled on this pole, and that's it. You know, that's going to be the end of my problems with somebody who won't bow down to me. Interesting, you know, who else had people try to bow down to him? Does anybody remember? Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. you know, and what did he say? Well, he doesn't bow down to me, we're going to do what? Throw him in the fire. Throw them in the fire, you know, I mean, and and what I find is interesting with Nebuchadnezzar, and by the way, just to connect this a little bit, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonians who took the Israelites into uh, captivity, and now they're still in captivity in the media of Persia, although it's a timeline uh, the temple has already been rebuilt, and many of the people have left captivity and gone back to Jerusalem at this time. <coughs> but many of the Jews remained in Susa. But, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel gives him and tells him who the head is, and I guess it went to his head, and he builds a statue, tells everybody they've got to bow down to it, and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to it, and he threw them in the fiery furnace, and, and then he sees a fourth guy walking around. And so, but the flesh hates the spirit and hates the conviction of it, okay? So is not much different. I think that's the last verse, is it? Okay. So, you know, so what we see here, though, within Haman, is this battle. So go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 15. Okay end with this. <clears throat> um, next, uh, go back up a verse. 14, I think. Uh, good, uh, let's start with 13. We'll just read right through. Uh, 13. 513. Five, Thanks for being patient with me. <clears throat> you, my brothers and sisters, were be free, But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Go ahead. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go ahead. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. One more. So I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. One more. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not able, you are not to do what you want. There is a battle raging inside of every one of us. as a battle of the flesh and the Spirit. But the only way that we're going to have victory over the flesh is to do exactly what Esther did. She put on the royal robes. She put on the new life. Our victory comes from putting on Christ in me, the hope of glory, being who God has created me to be. We died with Him, we are buried with Him, and we are raised in newness of life, so walk in Him. The event has already happened. The Christian life is me learning how to walk in this newness of life. How do I become who God has already created me to be with His salvation? All this happened when we trusted Christ. And but, but, but wait, that battle still rages inside every one of us, the flesh and the spirit. We all want to be patted on the back. We all want everybody to look up to us and see how good we are. <clears throat> but life, real life, is by walking in the spirit. Um, go back uh, one or two verses. So go back one, one more. So I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The, The whole Christian life can get so confused. We can so often live the Christian life by saying, do not walk in the flesh and you will then walk in the Spirit. What's wrong with that? There's no power. There's no power. The power of victory is in the Spirit of God living inside of me. It's walking in who Christ has saved me to become. It's him living his life out in me and through me. And I desperately need him and his wisdom and direction to walk in his spirit so that I will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And when we live in negative Christianity, where it's don't, 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 we're not giving anybody any power. The power is in who God has created me to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving me. I thank you that I I just can't get over the amazing thing of the way you put the Word of God together. It's amazing. Both the Jews and the Gentiles accepted this book into the canon of Scripture. And, Lord, only you knew the power of the third day, the power of the resurrected life, walking in newness of life in you, Father. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for just accepting us the way we are, and each day living your life to, to help us